Good morning. Good morning. Totally did not just trip on the way up to the platform. How's everybody doing? That was very convincing. Uh, we're back in Romans today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3. As you turn, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your constant care and love for us as a church family. As I think about the small group of us meeting in our living room a couple years ago, I'm amazed at what you've done. As I think about the ground that we've covered in Scripture, I'm amazed at what we've been able to study and work through together. I'm grateful for the ways that you've been calling for yourself a people here who are not afraid to face hard things in the Bible, in the world, and in ourselves. Father, thank you for the birth of Evelyn this past week. Thank you for the gift of life. I pray that you'd make Leo into a godly, strong father who tells the truth about your fatherhood. Thank you for the children of this church, for mothers and fathers who are committed to raising kids that honor you, who are humble and who seek help and who desire to grow. Thank you, Father, for the kids that are on their, their way, for the life that you've given to the Albersons and to the Mays and the Abrams and the Solsters and now the Cerises. Pray that you would protect these little ones, that you give their mothers and fathers and siblings faith and hope and love as they wait, that you would be with Meredith especially today as she uh, nears the time of the uh, baby being born. Thank you uh, for Jamie's successful surgery this past week and for caring for those among us who have suffered who've been sick, who face their own struggles, big and small. Pray that you'd be near to Destiny and her family as they mourn the loss of her grandmother. And we thank you for faithful family members who step into our lives and love us as their own. We also thank you for those who serve us every Sunday morning, from the Y staff to the team that come and set up early, Bart and Zach and Kashada and uh, everyone who serves our kids um, in the nursery and in children's church. Father, help us all to trust and honor you with our lives, with our bodies, with our hearts, with our souls. Help us to love our families and to love each other and to love our neighbors and forgive us our many sins. As we turn to your word now, give us faith and humility. Give us love for your word. Give us love for each other. Give me wisdom and power by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start this morning just by saying that I'm really proud of this church. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot as I've prepared to preach on this passage. We have been through some intense stuff over the past two months. And I don't mean just like in our lives. I mean like in Scripture, the past two months have been intense. We've worked through some of the most intense passages in all of the Bible together. And it's been really sweet and really encouraging and uh, really... I don't know how to say it. It's built my faith. Um, the types of passages that are easy to avoid, they're the types of passages that when you come to them as a pastor, it's really tempting to sort of soft sell them or to pull your punches. And why do pastors do things like that? Well, they do things like that because they're afraid that their church is going to punish them for saying to them what God says. And by God's grace, I think we have a church that would deal with me for not saying what God says, for avoiding what God says. And that strengthens me as a pastor. Like this is a two-way street. I need to be strengthened and helped by you. 
just as much as you need to be strengthened and helped by me. And so when we come to hard things, and I feel you guys wanting to hear God's hard truths, it encourages me and it strengthens me. And it's amazing that we've gone through as much as we've gone through it and that we've spent as much time as we have spent in intense parts of Scripture. It's just really, really great. So that's, I guess, all I wanted to say about that. We are a church that is committed to taking all of Scripture seriously, to leaning into hard things. We trust God. We trust that every word of God is inspired and true and profitable. And we all know from our own experience, too, that growth happens at the places where we're challenged, right? Growth happens at the places where things get hard, where the rubber meets the road. We would never respect a coach. You all played sports growing up. Some of you did. You'd never respect a coach that never told you how to get better, that never told you the ways that you need to improve, that never pointed out your flaws and your mistakes, right? That kind of coach is not committed to you growing. You never uh, respect a teacher who doesn't challenge you. A mother and father who don't say hard things to their kids or mothers and fathers who don't desire their kids to grow. And a pastor who never says hard things or stays away from them doesn't love his people. And so here we are, we're in Romans and things get even more intense this week. This, I will say, is the last week of the elevated intensity, okay? This is the last, this is sort of the conclusion, this week's passage of the everything is terrible and you are all terrible people uh, passage. But, but you are terrible. You stink. We all do. And so we need to dig in. The diagnosis is hard. Why is the diagnosis hard? Well, it's like Andy said last week, we all have circuit breakers. We all have things that we put in place to protect our egos from hard truth, because it really is hard to face the truth, even if we tell ourselves that we want to. On some level, our egos, our pride, are at war with the entire universe. We are each our own black hole, our own reality distortion field, trying to bend the cosmos to ourselves, to our will, to our desires. Wherever reality crosses us, we exert all our powers to bend it, to twist it, to fit it into our box, to conform it to our frame. So long as our egos, our pride just gets to remain intact, we will bend everything we possibly can. So long as it's our desires that prove to be immutable or unbendable, rather than the laws of the universe, we will twist the truth. We're like spoon-bending illusionists, you know, like Yuri Geller. Have you seen people that do it, bend the spoons? It's all an illusion. It's all a question of perspective. But there's no link to the ends that we will go to to avoid being humble. And some of us are really good at this sort of thing. We can convince ourselves. We can convince others. But we're our own worst enemies when we do that sort of thing. And that's why the Apostle Paul has been so ruthless in Romans in the opening chapters. He's attacking the places where we twist reality, where we protect our pride, where we protect ourselves, where we have little force fields or circuit breakers in place that get tripped up. And if you step back, it's really kind of funny. It's really kind of broken because what we're talking about is really maybe the most obvious reality uh, in the world. Evil exists. 
and it exists because we are sinful. That's it. That's, that's the big, heavy, hard truth that we try to avoid. Evil exists, and it exists because we ourselves are sinful and rebellious. Uh, have you guys ever heard of a man named Blaise Pascal? He's French. Don't hold it against him. Uh, he said something. Uh, if you know him, you probably know him from a thing called Pascal's Wager, but that's not what we're going to talk about this morning, okay? Uh, there's a thing he said about the biblical doctrine of sin, of original sin, okay? And this is my paraphrase of it. We don't believe in original sin because it makes sense. We believe in it because it makes sense of us. Not that we understand it, but that apart from it, we're unable to understand ourselves, we are broken, and nothing can be more fundamentally obvious. And what's funny about how obvious it is, is how hard we work to hide it from ourselves and from everyone else around us. It's a silly, horrible game that we play. We're like children who think that if we can cover our eyes, we can't be seen, right? You can't see me. And that's the way that we deal with sin. You don't have problems. You don't have to deal with problems. You don't tell lies liar. You don't lust, liar. You don't deal with anger, uh, with anger. So when we come to hard things in the Bible, we trust that they're there because God loves us and knows that we need to hear them, right? No matter how unpleasant they may seem. And again, it's funny that we need God to look at us and say, I still see you even though you've covered your eyes. But that's basically all that we've been doing throughout Romans 1, 2, and now 3. We're spending three chapters arguing that we are actually sinners. Duh. Is there a day that goes by that does not prove that you're a sinner? No. Is there a day that goes by where you're not angry or impatient or lustful or proud or self-righteous or judgmental or foolish or jealous or covetous or rude or disrespectful? The answer is no. We're all of those things every day. If we're honest... We're just afraid of being honest. It's just who we are. We're a mess. And we work hard to pretend like we're not, to protect our egos from our mess and to forget that we're going to die. Uh, anybody in this room ever been into productivity culture? Yeah? Just Ben? Anybody been into productivity culture, like getting things done, David Allen? I, like, I, I spent some time getting uh, deep into productivity culture when I was early in seminary because... We had just gotten married, and we had just gotten pregnant with Peter, and I had just started seminary, and I was commuting from Bloomington to Indianapolis, working part-time, and I was helping start a, a campus ministry. It was all these things all at once. It was like, I got to get this under control. And it was crazy, and it was overwhelming. Here's a question. What's the difference between a slave and a workaholic? The difference is that the slave knows he's a slave, and he's a slave by coercion. The workaholic has been conditioned into slavery and is a slave by choice. Either by external pressures or by internal pressures. Committed to finding worth and value and meaning in a level of productivity and accomplishment that's ultimately elusive. That's a place you can never get to. No matter the tactics or methods you use, no matter how you hack your concentration and focus, whether you set 15-minute timers or use binaural beats and caffeine or Adderall, it just doesn't matter. If we're always busy, we're never alone with ourselves. 
if we're always entertained, if we're always distracted, if we're always running a thousand miles an hour, we're never alone with ourselves or with God. We do so many different things to distract ourselves. All man's evils stem from his inability to sit alone in a room quietly. That's also Pascal. So what's the point? What's the point of dealing with evil and sin and checking our egos? Well, the point, the goal, is just to help us see that we all need Jesus. It just takes some hard truth. It takes some reckoning with ourselves. It's easier to look out there, to look at the world and see the world needs Jesus. It's much harder to be honest with ourselves. It's scary. We're kind of like the old man with the cough who's been a lifetime smoker. He doesn't want to go to the doctor. Why? Well, he's scared of what the diagnosis will be. All he really wants is better cough drops, something to help mask the symptoms. And that's the way that each of us can be when it comes to our own sin. Really good at diagnosing other people's sins and other people's problems. But when it comes to us, lifetime smoker, coughing like crazy, we just need better cough drops. We don't have another problem and we don't want the diagnosis. We don't want to go to the doctor and we don't want to hear it. Cynthia's dad was my doctor, and a couple years ago, uh, he told me I was on a fast track to diabetes, heart disease, and an early grave. I was like, Doc, I don't want to hear that. I'm not fat. Like, I'm, I'm okay. Like, I don't eat that poorly. He's like, well, for one, you eat, you eat worse than you think you do. And two, you just have bad genetics. Sorry. It runs in the family. You got to work harder than most people or you're going to die. And that's really about what he said. Uh, he was not renowned for his bedside manner, um, or he was rather renowned for not having any. True or false? It's true. He's just, that's just the way that he was. It's like, dude, you just insulted my grandma. Give me a second. <laughs> Sheesh. <laughs> it was a bitter pill. I didn't want to swallow it. Um, and, then, and, then, and then he died of an undiagnosed genetic heart defect. And I was angry. I was angry with him for dying. I was angry with God for taking him. I was angry with God for bad genetics existing and being a thing. <laughs> for his, for mine. Which is to say I was angry at God for the false. I was angry at two different atoms at once. And I rebelled. But you know what? I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. I have to be willing to reckon with uncomfortable truths and deal with them, right? We all do. So I've been trying with mixed motives, with all kinds of problems and fits and starts, but I've been trying to face reality because I know that if I have bad genetics, that makes me responsible to do my part to overcome them, right? Many of us will work hard to get our health in order once we've had some kind of scare. If only we take our souls that seriously. Uh, here's a question for you. Uh, this was pointed out to me recently. Does anybody know how many, like if you live to be 80 years old, do you know how many weeks that is? Did anybody do that math real quick in your heads? Any of you math geniuses? Somebody's done it, huh? 4,000. 4,000, and Jennifer perfected it with the extra twos in there. 160, yeah. About 4,000 weeks. Okay, who's 40? 40-ish, 2,000 weeks to live if you make it to 80. 2,000, 2,000 weeks. That's 
that's what you have left. 20, you got 3,000. Have you considered how short your life is, how quickly it's going to be over? <laughs> you didn't want to hear that this morning, did you? <laughs> yeah. 60, it's 1,000 weeks, 1,000. I didn't say that. I wasn't talking about you. Let's not make this personal. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I'm not even asking who's 60 in this room. I don't want to know. <laughs> if you passed it, you have fewer than 1,000 weeks. If you make it to 80, you, know, you can make it beyond that. We all know that, right? But have you reckoned with how short your life is? What's between us? What's standing between us and the truth? What's standing between you and the truth? What's standing between you and God? What's keeping you from accepting the fact that you're going to die and you're going to face God? It's our egos and our pride. Those have to die before we die. They are what get between us and God. They are what get between us and the truth about ourselves. And therefore, that's what gets between us and growth. Between us and change. Between us and doing anything in our lives that will have a lasting impact beyond us. I've said it before and I've said it again and I will keep saying it. I don't think that the primary legacy that we leave to our children is wealth or knowledge I think the primary legacy we leave to our children is a trajectory. It's a pattern of growth or not, of growing in wisdom so that they build on us and their kids build on them. And generations from now, somebody looks back and says, I don't know who started this, but thank God for them. God says he is faithful to the thousandth generation. Deuteronomy 7. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That's true. All our days are written in his book. And if he cares for the grass and the lilies of the field, if his eye is on the sparrow, then every hair on our heads is numbered. And he takes pleasure in us. And that's all to say that it's just a few days, it's just a few weeks, and it's over. And we don't have time to play games, not with God and not with God's word and not with ourselves, not with our souls, not with the souls of our children. God loves us. Jesus is the good physician. He wounds so that he can heal. And all that to say, we stare this morning again. It's a long introduction to say, one last go at the abyss that we need to stare into that is the sinfulness of man, that is the sinfulness of our own hearts. Into the abyss of our own depravity. Okay, so this morning we have five objections or five questions, five circuit breakers, five ways that we say stop right there and try to keep God and his word at arm's length. Paul's going to address each of them and he's going to make his closing argument and we're going to move through them pretty quickly because each answer leads to the next question or objection, okay? Romans 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Okay? This is his way of saying, 
what's the point of being a Bible nerd? What's the point of growing up in church? What's the point? What's the purpose of being a part of God's people? Okay, there's a specific thing going on here and a general thing. That's the general thing. The more specific thing is, what about the Jews? Jesus is a Jew. He's the Jewish Messiah. He came to the Jewish people first. Excuse me, his own people rejected him. Why did that happen? Why didn't they receive him? Why didn't they embrace him? Those are big questions. Uh, Paul feels a lot of the tension of that in Romans, and he's going to address it more specifically when we get to Romans chapter 9. Okay? But he's just said, look, it doesn't matter, Jew, Gentile, everybody's a sinner. In fact, if you think you're special because you're Jewish and circumcised, guess what? That only makes you worthy of more judgment because you've received God's revelation and you still don't live up to it. You can be a pagan, you can be a judgmental jerk, you can be a self-righteous hypocrite. You can be a hearer and not a doer. You can be a talker but not a walker. You can signal the thing without having it. All that amounts to us all being guilty. So that brings us to the question that kicks off the passage. If it's true that a Jew who has God's law and the sign of circumcision and doesn't live up to it because he can't receive a more harsh judgment for his hypocrisy, what's the point? What's the good of being Jewish? And then for us, if it's true that if we grow up with God's word and God's promises, if we've been baptized and we can still be hypocrites, what's the point? All that gets us if we are hypocrites is a harsher judgment, then what's, what's the point? What's the benefit? And he says, well, actually, there's a lot, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, okay? They, they had God's promises. They had God's word, and so do we. So do our kids. Why is that such a good thing? Because you want to grow up with God's promises. Because you want to be where God's word is being preached and taught. Because you want to be where God's people are. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Hearing it is good. Growing up with it is good. It protects you. It shapes and forms your conscience. It's used by God to save you. Is it dangerous in here? Yeah, it is. You can hear and refuse to believe. You can be a hypocrite, and that will get you a harsher judgment. But it is much more dangerous out there, away from God's word, away from God's people, away from God's blessing. And the truth is, you don't have to choose between being a hypocrite and a pagan. You can come to Jesus as a humble, repentant sinner. Objection number two What if some are unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What if some people in here are hypocrites? What if some people in here don't believe? Does that mean that God's promises have somehow failed? Answer, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The answer is this. No, God is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him, or rather, he is faithful to his word all the time. He is never not faithful to his word. If you're a believer, he is faithful to his word. He's faithful to his promises. He promises to save all those who believe. If you're not a believer, if you reject God, if you're a hypocrite, he is still faithful to his word, and he promises to judge. In both cases, God is faithful, and our faithlessness only highlights his faithfulness. Our hypocrisy and lies only demonstrate his truth in the truth of his righteousness and of his judgments. So that leads to the next objection or the next question. 
Well, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And Paul says, I speak in a human way. So what's he dealing with there? Doesn't that kind of make it wrong for God to judge? We've already shown uh, in our previous work through Romans 1, 2, and 3 that we actually all believe in judgment. We actually all believe in the wrath of God. We actually all kind of want God to judge the world. We just don't want to be a part of the judgment, right? We show that by our impatience, by setting ourselves up as judges, by being judgmental. We judge all, all, all kinds of people all the time. We look at the evil in the world. We see problems. We want it to be fixed and resolved. We want God to fix it. We just don't want to be on the wrong side of it, right? So here's what we come up with. Well, if I deserve judgment because my sin sort of stands as a contrast to God's righteousness, if kind of the point of there being liars is it demonstrates that God is true, if kind of the point of there being unrighteous people is to show that God is righteous, we're kind of doing them a favor, right? Like, he'd be really wrong to punish us for doing such a good job of showing how righteous he is by our, our unrighteousness, right? And that's, that's the way that we think. So here's the answer. By no means, for then how could, could judge, how could God judge the world? Paul says, listen, God's going to judge the world. You know it's going to happen, and you know it's right. At the end of the day, it's Jesus or it's hell. Jesus was judged in our place and endured God's wrath on the cross, Three days later, he triumphed over sin, death, and hell so we can live, so that when we're judged, we won't be condemned but justified, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what he's done on our behalf. You either embrace that or you go to God and you deal with your actions, your sins, yourself. See if you can bear up under his judgment, which you can't. Objection number four. No, I don't think you heard the question. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? That, that argument was kind of great, actually. See, if it all works to God's glory, then he should just chill out because it all works out to his glory. And there's got to be somebody on the wrong side of things, which means we're all kind of on the right side of things at the end of the day, right? If it all works out in the end, why is he angry? If my darkness makes the light brighter, if my sin makes righteousness shine, if my lie makes the truth clear, maybe God should just thank us all for being rebels. That is the way that we think. Some of you have had parents like this. Well, you wouldn't be who you were if I wasn't the jerk that walked out on you. And you turned out pretty great. Eh, you learned a lot through that, didn't you? You know, my abusive behavior actually prepared you to cope with the evil of the world. I taught you to be a survivor. You should be grateful. Hey, how about no? Just because God turns things for good does not make it okay that you walked out, that you're an abusive jerk. Or fill in the blank. It doesn't erase the evil that has happened. This would be like Adam saying, well, if I hadn't eaten of the fruit of that tree, then Jesus wouldn't have come to save us all, so you can thank me when you get to heaven. 
It's like Pharaoh saying, well, you know, if I hadn't ordered the murder of all of the Hebrew children, Moses would have never been put in that basket. And then y'all would still be slaves. So you're welcome. It's like Judas and the high priest and Herod and Pilate all getting together and saying, you know, the fact that we conspired to torture and murder the innocent son of the living God kind of sort of accomplished the salvation of the whole world. You should thank us. It was a dirty job. Somebody had to do it. No. No, you murdered the son of God. You never had a good thing in your mind when you did it. And even if you did, how twisted would that be? We think this way, all of us. I had a former college student who had an older brother. Uh, They discovered in the womb that he was going to be uh, severely disabled. So they aborted him. And then they taught him that he should be grateful to be alive and grateful that they killed his older brother. And he, he lived his entire life under the pressure of, we sacrificed our brother's life for you, and you should be grateful. And you have to live up to that and make your life worth his sacrifice. What a horrible thing to do to a kid. Okay, next objection. And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Why not just blow it all off and do what we want? Okay. This is how we justify many of the lies that we tell, many of the sins that we commit. It's just the next step, right? It'll be better this way. When things work out, we can take credit for it. God does all things to his glory. That means all things work to his glory, even the bad things, and somebody has to do them. It might as well be me. Who cares? Paul will pick up this line of thinking later in the book of Romans, but for now he's got a really simple answer. Their condemnation is just. Anyone who says, let's do evil so that good may come, their condemnation is just. Who uses God as a cover for evil? Who works to find sophisticated ways of justifying the harm they cause to other people? They deserve what's coming to them. That's what he says. Okay, so is there an advantage to being born a Jew or growing up in church? Absolutely. Does it make anyone better off? Eh, Not really. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Okay, so there are advantages to growing up in church. There are advantages to growing up with the Bible, but those advantages don't make you better in and of yourself, okay? Those advantages are growing up and learning that you need Jesus just as much as everybody else does. And here's where Paul really brings things home by opening up a biblical doctrine that we have come to call total depravity. Depravity or total depravity is the idea that we are in every part of us infected by sin. Our minds, our hearts, our wills, everything. Not that we are as evil as we can possibly be, but that there's no part of us that is unaffected by evil, by sin. So classic illustration, if you had the advantage of growing up in church, if you've been to VBS or Young Life or whatever, camp, uh, is the glass of water. You've got the glass of water and you have a, a food coloring, one drop of food coloring, and the whole glass goes red or green or it's usually red, right? Uh, You've probably heard that uh, explained like this because uh, usually the illustration is just like, well, one sin 
makes the whole glass impure. And that's true, uh, but here's what else the Bible teaches. That sin, the original sin of our father Adam, affects every single part of us as well. There's nothing that's protected and preserved. Everything is impacted by sin. So here's what the Bible teaches. We'll read it together. None is righteous, no, not one. Who's righteous? Nobody. Not one. No exceptions. None, no one is righteous in our being, in our nature. No one understands. Okay, our understanding, our minds are corrupted. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Our wills, our desires, our hearts. We don't seek for God. We turn aside. No one does good. Not even one. Our deeds, our actions are corrupt. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Our words, our throats, our tongues, our lips, our mouths, our words, what comes out of our hearts, evil and corrupt. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is a string of quotes from the Old Testament that are lined up to demonstrate that our depravity, our sinfulness runs deep down and it works itself all the way out. It is our nature, it is our being, it is our minds, our understanding, it is our wills, it is our hearts, it is our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. There's no part that's not touched and not corrupted. Which means that we need to be made new. We need to be transformed. We need to be born again, circumcised of heart, regenerated. These are words that you'll find all over the Bible from first to last talking about what has to happen to us. Because by nature, we are children of wrath. We've inherited sin from Adam, and it's not just what we do, it is who we are. Because it's who we are, it's how we think. It's the way our minds work. We suppress the truth, remember Romans 1. We hide it. We use our minds to work against God. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. Because, of it, because it's who we are and how we think, it's what we want. It's what we desire. We want what we want on our own terms. No one seeks for God. That's not the way that it works. Well, I kind of feel like I seek for God. I'm here seeking for God. Here's what the Bible says. If you seek after God, it is because God is seeking you. God seeks us out. And that's the story of human history. Adam rebels and hides. God comes and seeks Adam out. Adam's children rebel and hide. God seeks us out. Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. Many of us were not seeking God. And God found us. We are off doing our own thing wanting what we wanted, doing what we wanted to do, and God sought us out. No other explanation makes sense. So our natures are sinful, our minds are sinful, our hearts are sinful. Out of the overflow of the heart, we act and we speak. And to this day, if you've been born again, if you've been transformed, those are things that you still deal with. We all know this is true. Again, this is like hiding in plain sight. Your kids, did you need to teach them to take what wasn't theirs? Did you need to teach them to be selfish? 
Did you need to teach your kids to, be, to tell lies and to hide? We work really hard to teach them to share and to tell the truth and to be honest, right? Because selfishness is effortless. It's easy. Why? Because we're all by nature sinners, every one of us, even the cute little baby that may be born this afternoon. Nothing else makes sense of us. Nothing else makes sense of the world. We need God to change us, to change our hearts, our minds, our natures, our wills. But Jake, there's a lot of good people out there who don't know God. They do a lot of good things. That's true in one sense, but here's a deeper truth. We look at the outside and God looks at the heart. Here's what he looks for. He looks for faith that results in love and gratitude and a desire to honor and please him in all that we do. There are all kinds of reasons we might do things that are good or have the appearance of being good, but with impure motives. We act with impure motives all the time. We want people to praise us. We want people to like us. We want to prove to God that we don't need him, that we can be good without him, that we can be good in spite of him. And God wants us all, every action, every thought to come from faith and to be out of love for him. The standard is not some sliding scale of good or bad people in the world. It's his perfection. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The standard is not a sliding scale. God doesn't grade us on a curve. The standard is perfection. It's the law. It's the perfectly righteous life of Jesus. And next to that, no one is righteous, not even one. And if we don't believe it, we can look at our deeds and we can look at our words, our words of anger and pride and judgment and bitterness. Who do you love most in the world? Just stop and answer the question. Who do you love most in the world? Your husband, your wife, your mom, your brother, your sister? your son, your daughter. Okay, now judge your words. These are the people we love most. The people it should be easiest to speak perfectly to. This is how we treat them with how we speak and how we act. Now that's not to mention the people that we see in traffic, the people at work, our enemies out there. God sits in heaven and he sees all of it and he hears all of it and he endures all of it patiently. And some of us have the nerve to judge him and tell him he's not loving because he intends to judge the world. He made the world and everything that was in it and he made it all very good and we have made a mess of it. And he sits in heaven patiently enduring our evil and our depravity, sending forth good news, offering salvation and redemption. And we have the audacity to spit in his face and tell him it's his fault that things are so bad. He ought to do something about it. He ought to judge everyone, but not us. It's audacious. He made the world perfect and good, and it's our fault it's messed up, and he is doing something about it. He is redeeming the world through his son, and he is delaying a judgment that will come with absolute perfect justice because he is kind and patient and desires that all should be saved. And we dare to act like we have some kind of angle on it that he doesn't have. This is the world. This is who we are. We want God to grade us on a curve. We want to set the standard. We want to be on top of the curve. 
God doesn't see us that way. Like many things in God's world, this is binary. There is male and female. There is right. There is wrong. There is righteous. There is unrighteous. There is perfect. There is imperfect. And guess where we land? Unrighteous, imperfect. So here's the diagnosis. It's real. It's deep. The answer is sin. That's the diagnosis. And here's the prognosis. Death and judgment. But there's a cure. And the cure begins in the very next word of the very next verse. And it's all you're going to get of it this week. It's just one word. But. But what? But Jesus. But Jesus. We'll turn there next week, but for now, come to Jesus. Come to him by faith. God himself has to deal with our sin. Sin is so big and so deep that the only way to stop us from sinning is to die or for someone to die for us. That's what Jesus has done. God himself stepped down from heaven to take this problem head on for us. He lived the perfect life we could never live. He suffered and died in our place, taking our judgment on himself. Three days later, he rose from the grave, triumphant over sin, death, and the devil. He traded his righteousness for our sin. He traded his reward for our punishment. He saves us from our sin, redeems us, changes us, and empowers us to overcome sin in our lives. He's why we come together every Sunday morning. So come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't pull punches and that you tell us the truth of who we are. Pray that we'd have the faith to see our sin and to turn from it and to come to Jesus this morning. It's in his name we pray, amen.